time I tell the joke about how years ago uh, I was working with Owen Davidson and we were working with, with a group of three Oh and three five ladies and they were out hitting the ball. And one of them kind of yelled at a distance to Owen Davidson, you know, can we work on some strategy? And he brought everybody in and I said, uh, you know, ask what she said to repeat the question. And she said, can we work on strategy? And he said, well, you know, based on what I've seen for about the last 15 minutes, it would be a good strategy to hit the ball a little better. And that always stuck with me uh, for 30 for some odd years. And so I think you're going to address things similarly. So, um, Jack, you've been a part of this game for, for so many years, grew up in Southern California and uh, a very accomplished junior player, a very accomplished pro uh, and coach you've worked with. Let's see here. Sam Query, Stevie Johnson, Steve Foreman, Coco Vandeway, Abigail Spears, Warren Wood. Uh, you've also worked with coaches like Peter Smith, Emilio Sanchez, Nick Volatari, uh, Mike Annette, um, and your products have been used you know, by the Bryan brothers and many others, including golfers in the top 100. So without further ado, Jack Brody, welcome to the Intermountain Conference. It's so great to see you. Thanks. Thanks, Andy. Nice to be here. Uh, I'm, new to the, I'm new to this area. So yes, you are. It's a, it's a lot of fun for me and um, not used to the snow yet, but I'm getting there. And uh, I kind of like it. My dog likes it. Well, I was <laughs> when I first moved here from Texas, I hadn't seen it. We had a really cold winter, and I think you've experienced the same thing. Let's start with this, Jack. Let's just let's just take a look at sort of the the topic in its entirety and ask, what do you mean by hit a better ball and play like it's second nature? I mean, it seems obvious, but what what's your take on that? I mean, as a it started for me as a junior. I I I, um, I was a journeyman. You know, I was ranked top. 15 or so in my section, New England. Uh, that's where actually where I grew up till I was about 17 years old. And then I went to college and played Chapel Hill and UCSD. But uh, when I was a junior, I remember being in the boys 14s, you know, losing in the quarters and then watching the two guys in the finals, you know, and watching them warm up and just thinking to myself, you know, I don't think I can get all these big wins without hitting a ball the way these two guys do, period. And it never left me uh, in my whole life. I just thought, you know, I mean, I was in great shape. I ran up sand dunes in Palm Springs, and I did everything you could possibly do to get in great shape. I read all the strategy books. I read, you know, the inner game. I read it all and, and did it all. I went to Harry Hopman's Tennis Academy in Florida, and I just, I tried so hard, and I was a good journeyman. But that was it. You can't go to the next level unless you hit a really good ball, unless you're consistent, unless you look good. It's got to look good, too, because hitting a good ball, it's, it's tennis and golf. Those sports are all about form. It's not like football where you've got a big, massive body and you're, you're a blocker, or you're a tackler or this or that. Tennis is, is strictly about form. So I, I when I was a kid, I remember thinking – I was very fast, you know, very fast. And I wanted to win so bad. But I always thought to myself, I would give I would give one of my arms to hit the ball the way these guys do. And I felt that way my whole life. I just felt like, hey, if you hit a great ball, you look better, you feel better, you enjoy yourself, and you can just play tennis without stressing out. You don't have to chip and charge all the time. You don't have to lob when you should be passing them. You know what I mean? You can rope the ball instead of steering the ball. So it's been a life quest. And I was fortunate enough to coach so many good players. You mentioned a few of them um, that I really got to understand 
uh, with my students, uh, uh, how, how this heavier ball, this thunkier ball is hit. And then, you know, I'm sure, you know, 25 years ago, I invented the eight board and a bun bunch of other products that people still use today on all different sports. And it was, it was starting there, which is when I started getting all these good students because the kids and the parents started thinking, Oh, I like that, uh, that, that wiggling of the hips that makes sense to me. And, um, and the more I coached, the more I picked it up myself, I started playing left-handed. I play a pretty nice lefty game today. And I couldn't have, you know, I couldn't have scratched my head 20 years ago with my left hand, but I play a nice game. I still serve lefty. And my right-handed game is, you know, become way better than college. I mean, and, and I played college tennis and did pretty okay. And once again, journeyman though. So to me, it's all about the way you hit the ball. And I know people really into strategy and all that, but I'd still give my arm to hit a better ball. You know, if that's all I can do is just be a great hitter, I would take that over grinding and pushing and retrieving any day, at least for me personally. That's how, how I felt about and it. And how, how has the, how has your interpretation of hitting a better ball evolved from the time that you and I were in the juniors and the, you know, in the, in the seventies and college tennis around that time, obviously the equipment has had an effect on it, but as far as the, the physical fundamentals, have you seen those evolve as well uh, substantially as far as part of your system? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was an okay coach, even in my early twenties, I had some decent players, journeymen, uh, you know, like me, guys that would grind it out to be in the top 20, top 30. But um, yeah, I mean, it kind of, I kind of discovered it all with Agassi. I started studying that guy and realizing, wait a minute, he's smaller than everyone else and he's out hitting everybody. And I felt the same about Marcelo Rios, right? I'm watching this guy who's five foot seven, just you know, out acing, Safine, pushing them all over the court. And I just, it struck me. And um, at the time, I was studying this thing called projective geometry, spatial dynamics. It's real heavy stuff. It has nothing to do with tennis, nothing to do with tennis. Okay. But these Steiner colleges were all over the world. There's 60 of them all over the world. And people don't know about them because they have, once again, tennis pros don't know because it has nothing to do with tennis. It's mathematics. Okay. And, I, and they started talking about this figure eight and how you can see how a figure eight translates to a larger figure eight, kind of like dropping a, a pebble in water, right? And you see the rings exponentially get larger. And they talked about Pascal's line, which was the 45 degree angle. And I started thinking to myself, wait a second, I see something here. <laughs> you know? okay. And I started super slow motioning these guys like Rios and Agassi and Sampras on his serve and other players. And I just said, oh, my God, this is, this is really something. Everyone meets the ball at the 45-degree angle to, the, to their body, to the net, right? And, and, and if they don't, they drive it in the net. Like when they're early, the ball, you know, ahead of the 45, the ball goes in the net. And then I started realizing later that the shape of their hand was just what this guy was talking about, how um, – Small figure eight creates a sine wave. It, it, all mathematic terms, nothing to do with tennis. 
But I saw, oh my God, wait a minute. When these players turn their hips, their arm doesn't go back, right? It doesn't go back here. It just, it just stays in front of them and they start to create this coil, this, this curvature between their hips and their hand and their racket head. And then as they continue with their figure eight, the racket would lay back and do this sine wave. So when it made contact with the ball, it was a different shape than I, I'd never, no one ever said, here's exactly how the strings meet the ball to me. And oh my God, when I realized that, I, I realized, well, that's why guys like Sam and Stevie hit such a thunkier ball than all the rest of my kids. And the rest of my kids were good, right? They're all top 50 in SoCal. They weren't bad. But the bet and Foreman and Warren, all the best players, it sounded different the way they hit. And, and you could see the ball was sort of sunk into their strings a little deeper. And you could feel that the ball had more air being pressed into it at contact. You know, all these qualitative things that you can't really describe to someone. It's kind of like surfing, Andy. I can't really tell you how it feels to surf unless you surf. Well, then that begs to ask, I think we'll just start this session out by asking what maybe some people are thinking, which is that, is it possible, Jack, that based on what you're describing, that some of these medical, excuse me, these metaphysical philosophies of yours um, maybe were born of maybe time spent at Woodstock? <laughs> no, I was only okay, thinking, just checking. No, 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 no. It's not like I haven't okay. gotten that before. I, I've heard okay. that before. All right. All no, right. I just, was only 13. Why don't you ask? All right. I was only 13 okay. years old during Still. which Okay. Got and this it. isn't fluffy, okay? Right. As much as I really like the I, I really like the inner game of tennis a lot. But in retrospect, it was quite fluffy. It was quite hippy dippy. Yeah. And, you know, you got to feel it and you got to, you know, let things go. Mine's not letting things go. Mine's not about being unconscious. Like, the, you know, how the commentators say, oh, he's playing out of his mind. He's un unconscious. No, mine's the opposite. Mine's okay. about being super conscious. Right. When you see that forehand coming, you line up to that 45 precisely. You don't mess around. And then you do, you know, you continue with your hips. Your racket goes from concave to convex right along that 45 degree line. And as it lays open, the ball sinks into the strings. You push air into it, makes that nice sound. And you can do it every time. It doesn't have to be a, gee, I hit three great shots today, honey. No, I, I, no, this can be every time to where you go, gee, you know, I hit two bad balls today. That's kind of the difference, I think, between a grinder, which is what I was, and a baller, right? The ballers like Sam and Kyrios and whoever else is out right. there, they're the guys I want to play like. I mean, you know, some guys go, oh, it's great to be a grinder. You're in great shape. And I'm like, that might be for you. I don't want to be the grinder. I don't want to be the guy who's, oh, he's so fast and he gets everything back. Never really interested me. I wanted to be the baller. That being said, Jack, there are probably people on this uh, panel or excuse me, the attendees right now that are thinking of themselves. Well, that would be nice to be able to learn to hit the ball like Kyrgios or to learn to hit the ball like Query. And I'm not saying you can't, but how, how would you push back on somebody that says, well, they're just so supremely talented that it comes so natural for them. Can you learn to be talented? Yeah, of course. They have an, un they have an unconscious knowing 
of this system I'm talking about. They, they have an unconscious knowing. They know that their racket starts small in their body. And as they unfurl, it goes way out. And they know that 45, whether they can describe it or not, doesn't matter. But they have an unconscious knowing of exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. And yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm 66. I'm roping the ball now every time I play. And I don't even play as much as I did as a kid. I play now that I'm in Colorado every couple of weeks with some good players here. You yeah. probably know some of them. Of and nothing ever changes from the first ball, first moment I get out there because I've got the 45 and I've got these fundamentals that never change. I mean, the 45 degree angle never changes. Uh, where I, I said earlier with in the inner game of tennis, your psychology, your mental uh, acumen that day, it changes every day. Sure. But with mathematics, you can depend on mathematics. It's, it's just never going to change. So let's talk about some of the players that you've worked with. And you made some sure. general comments about Stevie Johnson and and obviously his forehand speaks for itself. And I it's a whopper. That, uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's big, as is Nick and, and Sam and all those boys. But talk about the specifics of what you have learned from some of these players that you've worked with and how that has filtered its way into your system. Yeah, I'm glad. That's a great question. No one ever asked me, uh, but I like that. Like Foreman, let's take him for example. He won, uh, he was number one in the U.S., uh, 12s through the 18s. Really good player, big boy. So it was, it was kind of easy with him. I got him on the board and I got his hips moving in a figure eight from the time he was five years old. And I asked him once, he, he won the backdrop. Before you go, you got him on the board and I know what that means but just maybe be a little more specific for those who don't oh, understand the board. I patented a product 20 some odd years ago called the eight board. It was basically an, a board that you stand on. It has two swivels. And by standing on the two swivels, you create a center point, right? A vertical axis, right? Cause you can't move or else you'll step off the board. So by swiveling your feet, you learned how to move your hips in this continuous figure eight fashion, which right. you see all the pros you know, all, all the good looking pros do that. Um, there are a few pros that rotate their shoulders, but they're not Federer. They're not Djokovic. They're not Nadal. They're not Henan. They're the journeymen. They're okay. the journeymen that are grinding and doing the best they can. And they're 25 in the world or 30 or 50. And they're working a lot harder even than, than the top guys because the top guys, their form is so much purer that they actually have to work less than these other guys grinding. And I can speak from experience. I was a grinder. So yeah, I asked Foreman once, either won or lost in the finals one year, the backdrop of the Orange Bowl. You know the Orange Bowl, pretty pretty tough tournament. Very. You got about 15% of Americans there and the rest are from all over the world. Anyway, Steven gets there. He loses in like the second or third round, but he gets to the finals of the backdrop and does really well. And... Uh, one of his matches, I can't remember which one, maybe it was the quarters or semis, he was down a couple of match points. And I I had to and I was there and I said to him, I said, Steve, what I mean, and he ripped, by the way, he did what I would never have done as a junior. He ripped the return of serve winner on one ball, and then he ripped a passing shot on another. I mean, he, he everyone, every match point he was down, he ripped the ball. And I would never do that. I'd be lobbing, you know, yeah, I'd be right. praying the guy would miss because yeah. I was a journeyman, not, not, a, not a baller. I wasn't top, top guy in the country. And Steven said to me, he goes, man, 
He says, every time it was a big moment, I just thought to myself, line up the 45 and let your racket fly out into the 45 degree angle big time and just go for it. And I thought, huh, that's pretty neat. And then uh, that same year, Eric Riley, uh, one another boy I coached uh, for 10 years or so, he was in the um, 12s. No, no, he was older. He was in the 16s. And he, uh, no, 18s. He was in the 18s. And they won the doubles. Okay. In in Miami. They won the, yeah, you betcha. They won the Orange Bowl doubles. And this kid's not big. He's only about 5'7". Very small kid, but a great doubles player. And I said to him, what is, how come your volley? I mean, he didn't miss a volley the whole tournament. I said, what are you thinking? Because I, I know what I taught him, but I want to know what they're thinking. He said, Jack, I always kept the butt of my racket. He says, it's just the way I do it. I keep the butt of my racket attached to my navel, my belly button. And he says, and I just move my body in a small figure eight and just line up the 45. He says, I can't miss. I just can't miss. I never leave the 45. The racket's always connected to my center. So I learn a lot from my guys, you okay. know, and, and I even asked Warren once. He won the NCAAs in 2015. Um, really nice player. One on, pound for pound. He's on the circuit right now, but he's, okay. I mean, he's like 1,400 in the world. But he just got started. He just got his yeah. first ATP point uh, a few months ago over in Africa. And he just went on tour. Uh, he decided at 28, yeah, I want to go back on tour. Okay. So, yeah. So he went back out. And I remember when he was a young kid, he won his first gold ball. I said to him, I said, gee, you really just, you nail the ball. I said, can I ask you something? He goes, yeah, because we're really close. I'm mm-hmm. close with all the kids. And I said, what's the, what's the one or two things that you always think about? He goes, well, he says, on my groundies, he says, which is what I live off of, because he's one of those guys, he just unbelievable backhand, great groundies. He said, I thought of what you told me when I was eight years old. I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, you told me to pretend like I'm a bee and plant your stinger in the ground and then move without moving your stinger. He says, that's always kept me centered, but I still have the hip rotation, but I always stay centered. You know, I never move my upper body where I pull off the ball. And he does. He has a beautiful, I wish I could show you right now, Andy. He has a beautiful, probably the, one of the prettiest two-handers in the game, period. Sounds and he's like only he's about 150, he's only 150 pounds and he just ropes the ball. He's so very I got a question that came in here with regard to the 45. Sure. And having to do with grips. Does grips, do grips matter to you? I mean, is that, is that kind of, this applies whatever grip you are comfortable with. You just have to systematically put those things together would be my assumption. I don't want to put words. Such a, such a great question. Um, well, I, I am funny about grips, certainly on serves and volleys. I'm old school. I'm a big believer. You got to master the continental grip. Yeah. Some people say you don't have to. They say you can even hit a volley with backhand volley with two hands. I don't let my five-year-olds hit a backhand volley with two hands. Okay. That's definitely where you and I part ways, but <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's all right. fine. Yeah. 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 No, no, because the thing is the kids learn. That's another thing. Roundness is much stronger than straightness. So the whole idea of bending your elbow and punching, 
uh, your arm is straight. It, it's bent, but it's it's in a linear fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you straighten it, it's straight in a linear fashion. Okay. I teach the kids to keep their arm rounded the way you see Federer or Hennen. Yeah. Their arm is always rounded like a bird's wing. So I have my five-year-olds hitting one-handed back in volleys. So I'm a wow. big believer in the continental grip on the okay. serves and volleys. On groundies, I'm not such a stickler. I okay. don't like, the only thing I don't like, I don't like the extreme Western grip for only one reason. It's very hard to face the 45 like the way Nadal does. When he makes contact, and I stop action him all the time. I mean, <laughs> I, I watch so much video, it's insane. He's always, his left hand's tucked in here, and he's always lined up to the 45. And then right after contact, yes, then he violently, you know, you see his shoulders right. violently move. But uh, with a Western grip, you have to face the net. Right. Even though your racket flies out to the 45, your eyes are facing sure. the net. So with a semi-Western, you can still keep your, your purview, your view towards that 45. Okay. That's the only reason I don't like okay, so the full Western grip. I would have been wrong, which today has been sort of my norm. The questions <laughs> that I've been asking. So I'm almost pitching a perfect game. I think I asked one question before that Warren said, you're right. And I'm like, yes. But I would have assumed that your aversion to the extreme Western is how restrictive that is in developing the other areas of your game. You don't see a lot of great volleyers with the, the extreme Western and maybe not even in some cases, great servers. So yes, I, well, you're right. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's two, everybody. You're right. Those of you keeping score at home. I was only talking about formulating the stroke itself, the right. forehand. Okay. I agree a hundred percent. For starters, you know, go ahead and name some good volleyers. You, you can barely name 10 in the last 50 years. I mean, when you go to the women, you go, Hennen. Really, you don't think of anyone else, but Hennen. Okay. <laughs> you know, because everyone else, all the other women, Serena, I, I don't think I've ever seen Serena hit a volley. She only swings. And most of the women I now, think Venus eventually developed. She, she started out with a midcourt swing volley, but it seemed like when she started winning big on grass and playing more doubles, I saw her hit more and more volleys with underspin in her older age. But to your point, you could I mean, be right. You yeah. could be right. But, but certainly when you go to the men, even you go from Federer and you go right to Sampras and then you go right to Edberg. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. let's not even talk about volleyers because the game has been woeful uh, when it comes to volleying since the Newcomb days and, you know, since, since the sixties and seventies, Johnny Mack. Uh, yeah, no one. And Johnny Mack had a good vod. Boy, that's there's a guy who located the 45, even his groundies. All right, that's all he did was he just lined up the 45. It was not a pretty stroke. Did everything with one grip as well. One grip. Yeah. But that guy had the 45 locked in. Mm -hmm. And I never realized it until I was older. I actually, uh, you know, played in tournaments with him in the boys' 12s and 14s. We're the same age. So uh, I played his doubles partner my very first tournament. Guy worked me. Oh, and one. Peter Fleming? And it wasn't Fleming. It oh, was okay. Reiner, Gary Reiner. Okay. It was and, in, and, it and was, I had somebody chime in with with Barty as a good female volleyer. And and uh, at one in the world, she's she does seem like she's got a fairly complete game. I'm pretty impressed with her. She's got yeah. me watching, she's got me watching women's tennis again a little bit more now. I am impressed with her. Mm -hmm. The thing with the women's game is. No one ever wins two tournaments in a row. <laughs> you know, it's so rare. You know, or you get Osaka winning a tournament and then she loses the first or second round in the next three tournaments. And you're like, 
you know, what's, what's going on here? Well, uh, we had uh, Pat Cash that we spoke to, not on this conference, but then we had Darren Cahill last night. And Pat Cash made a comment to us that he said, and he's working with, um, he's working with uh, one, of the, one of the Wong girls, uh, Chang Wong, uh, they call her Q. And um, she's doing very well on the tour. And, and, and Cashy was saying that after the U.S. Open final, with Radicanu and Layla Fernandez, they right. now have 50 girls in the locker room that are convinced that they can win a slam or at least go very deep. If they're going to watch these two teenagers do what they did, there's a lot of why not me kind of stuff going on, which is probably going to yeah. lend itself to exactly what you're, you're describing. I'm convinced, I'm convinced of that myself. I, you know, you just don't see a woman dominate. Maybe Ashley will. Um, but, you know, certainly Sloan didn't. I mean, there were so many girls that did well yeah. in one, two. Even my girl I worked with, Coco, a knockoff, Vanderway. Yeah. Vanderway, yeah. Yeah, she had a good tournament. But that's yeah. what you say with the women. They had a good tournament. Right. I mean, you know, the only one who really dominated was Serena. But I, I almost never use her as an example because I would not say she played the effortless game. And that's really what I'm into is, can everyone play like Federer? Yes. Can everyone play like Serena? No, no way, because her physical prowess is really half the reason, you know, she played the way she did and she's very competitive. But Roger plays such a pure game. It's like watching waves crash on the, you know, it's like watching surfers all day. Mm -hmm. That's that's what it's like to watch Roger. It's painless. What was your uh, what was your what were your thoughts, Jack, when you started to see the advent of the serve plus one, which. You could trace that back to Andy Roddick, I suppose, and what we what we saw the day Andy Roddick won the U.S. Open, and I believe he beat Juan Carlos Ferrero in that final, and he was dominant. It looked like he was going to be the king of the mountain, and it was going to be everybody to kind of catch up with him, and then suddenly Federer leapfrogged him and looked, never looked back. But but a lot of American players have emulated that game, and, to, and if we look at our you know the great players, the queries, the guys that you've worked with, we still see a lot of the accusation of what's wrong with American tennis and that it's the game isn't well-rounded enough. Of course. I mean, you remember Nick's old Nick. Uh, I'm friendly with him as well. A nice guy. Good guy. Nick Bulateri. Remember his old video back in the nineties or eight, late eighties. You gotta have a weapon. You gotta have a weapon. Right. I mean, that's all. I mean, he literally said it just like I did. Yep. And that's the problem. The clay courts uh, and the, the large rackets really, it was a big advantage to the people that played on clay. All they needed was a little more power. So we're running around, and my boys included, we're running around with serves and forehands. Right. Of course we can't crack the top 20. Of course we can't. Of course. I mean, how could we? You got Djokovic with every stroke in the game. Nadal, Federer, uh, Warenka has got beautiful backhand. He can volley. Andy Murray could do it all. And you got our guys with big first serves. Kick everyone's got a kick second serve. They spank them, the, they spank that forehand so hard, right? Uh, and then backhands they can't return serve very well, like Rownich and a few others. They just can't return serve uh, on the backhand side, and they can't hit the backhand down the line. So, you got these clay quarters that can do it all, and, and now they have a little bit more power. So, I think it hurt the American game. I think the whole idea even though Nick was on top of the world. And like I said, he invited me to Florida. I brought the boards. He had me give a clinic to all 27 of his pro really good guy. I like mm -hmm. him, but I think that idea of having a big weapon or having a big serve, I think it killed American tennis because 
uh, you want to be an all round play, an all court player. I, I, real quick, quick story, and then and then you can you can jump on this one. So one okay. year, um, one year, Stephen and Fabian and who else? Uh, Eric Riley. We won the 12s, 14s, and 16s at the um, SoCal sectionals. And that's okay. saying a lot because the SoCal yes. sectionals is like a national tournament. Very okay? It's yes. a tough one. And we won the 12s, 14s, and 16s that year. And you know what I did the week before? I had a little you know, training camp for this. It was called the sectionals training camp. And it was only I only allowed eight kids in it. And all eight got to the quarters or better. And then three of them won the tournament. Um, and unfortunately, one beat the other in the semis. Okay. So um, what I did was I said, we're going to play a little game. And this was on Wednesday. Cause I oh, knew, yeah. how, I knew how hard this game was going to hurt them. I said, we're going to play a little game. We're only playing to five and they're all great. You know, only to five. And it was in the morning. I said, okay, the ball has to go back and forth across the net a hundred times. And on the hundred and first ball, it, the point starts. Well, we won the 12s, the 14s, and the 16s. So I'm not a big believer in one-shot tennis or just hit a winner or try to paint the line. I'm a big believer in groove your strokes so you play tennis like a bird flies or like a fish swims, and you never even consider missing. However, and, okay, now I'm going to jump I, on it. You said I could. I said but, you could. But this 100-ball thing lends toward the mentality of a grinder, which you're – also saying, I don't want to be a grinder. I want to be a baller, man. I want to, I want to rip and I want to have these huge strokes. So where, where's the now balance remember, of those two? Where do those come together? Now, remember, you're talking about top 10 guys in these right. eight, group of eight guys. Okay. There was a couple of girls there too. And one got to the semis. Did okay. very well. We did well. Boy, we own that sectionals. But um, I mean, I don't disagree with the game. I actually love it. No, they sure don't. got anybody at my club that could accomplish that. But, but, these, but these guys don't push the ball back. Remember, okay. these guys all had nice strokes. They had all, okay. you know, they had all won big tournaments. So it wasn't right, like right, they right. were stiffs. No, no. <laughs> and so they had good strokes. In fact, I remember once Bijan and Steve Foreman, Bijan Moalami, um, I think that's who Steve beat in the semis. Um, he was a good player. He was three in the country, Bijan. And they got to 96 and Bijan missed. Well, Foreman was ready to kill him. <laughs> Kill him. But no, these guys didn't lob the ball or push it back. Of course, they did in the beginning. But as the morning went on, remember, it took three hours. And only one of the four courts got to five. We, I said, we'll quit when one court gets to five. And, but they got their strokes so grooved yeah. that they could hit the ball in their sleep. Yeah. No, no, we don't push the ball. No, these guys were hitting nice balls. I wouldn't say they were crushing it. But nice three-quarters pace. And you know, Andy... Three quarters pace in the juniors wins the day. Sure. Now yeah. let's 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 go back to this whole conundrum of of American tennis and 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 the serve plus one and the big weapon thing being what kept our players out of the top 20, 30. But but Phil Jackson actually went down to the Australian Open once during stints with the Lakers. Like he was with the Lakers, left them for a while, came back. And during oh, I'm a Laker interim, fan, I know. So you remember. So he, during the interim, he was a huge tennis fan. And yep. he went down to the Australian Open um, to kind of hang out with the Bryan brothers, as I understand it. And Great guys. And great friend, guys. Yeah, Philip Farmer was down there uh, working with, with Bob and Mike at the time, and he was down there. And in that particular Australian Open – Roger put an ass whipping on Andy Roddick, the likes of which 
I, I mean, in all of the times that Roger beat him, I don't think he ever beat him this ugly. And uh, I think his record was what fourteen and one. So it wasn't, I think it was it like wasn't, 20, twenty-three and something. Or it was yeah, it wasn't much. It wasn't much of a rivalry. And, and, and that's to Andy's him. own admission. But anyway, Correct. so Phil Jackson's down there and he's watching all this tennis and he calls Philip Farmer after the tournament. And he he says, Philip, I I think I figured something out about about the American players, particularly Andy Roddick, versus Roger Federer's approach to tennis. And, uh, and Philip Farmer's like, I can't believe I'm on the phone with Phil Jackson, first of all. And, and second of all, like, yeah, I'm listening. And he said, well, this is something that I noticed when I worked with Michael and Scotty and, and Shaq and Kobe. And now Philip's like, oh, my God, this is going to be good. Sure. And he said, he said, does Andy Roddick play chess that you know of? And Philip's like, not that I've ever seen. And he goes, what about Roger? And he goes, matter of fact, I, I think Roger, I think he does enjoy chess. And he goes, what about Andy? He said, does he, does he play video games? And Phillip's response was, yeah, on days off, like four, four to six hours a day. And he said, I think that's your problem. He said, I looked out on that court with those two players and I saw a video game player versus a chess player. And he said, I think if you can, if you can get that concept to permeate its way through American tennis, then your whole immediate immediate gratification, ADD, serve plus one, end the point fast, get your ranking up real fast. Everything that everybody wanted to happen real fast was a product of this video game generation. I just thought that was a very interesting thing for him to identify so quickly. He's a great coach. I was a big Phil Jackson fan, except for when he went to Florida, but I was a big Phil Jackson fan. And he's got a good point. The only thing I have to say is, well, you can say that. It's like when Brad Gilbert told Andy to go to net. Well, he forgot to give him a volley. As soon as Andy started going to net, his ranking went from one for those four weeks to 25. And I'm talking about in a period of two months, he went from one to 25 because he took Brad's advice. He went to net. And he stepped and punched on his volleys and he didn't line up the 45 and he was target practice for Nadal and better. He was just target practice. And so that was, so I agree with what Phil says, but unless you can hit a better ball, unless you have the formula to hit a better ball, you're just, you're going to lose it because I can tell you, I saw Andy many times uh, live but once I was down with uh, Pancho Segura when he was around and we had courtside seats and Andy was playing someone he lost. I can't remember who it was. It was someone good. And um, I was at courtside and I can tell you both sides, forehand and backhand. I not kidding. He mishit. I mean, you can hear the tambourine. Sure. He mishit 50%. I was so dis, and I'm a big Andy fan because I like his personality a lot. Sure. Oh, but I was so disappointed because I thought to myself, Jesus, you watch Federer, and I've watched Federer courtside. Every ball is like a Stradivari. It's like a bass, big bass yeah. guitar, you know, an electric bass guitar, thunk, thunk, big boom. And I tell you the difference of sound, the quality of hit, just is not there. So you can say what you want about Andy. Oh, yeah, if he could only play like a chess player, forget it. He didn't have the quality of pure hit that Roger had. I'm courtside, and I can tell you, it sounded like a Ford Pinto next to Federer's BMW souped up. A whole different world watching, sitting courtside watching these two players. Uh, another funny story is Agassi, he only commentated once, and I really like him a lot. He's great. 
Yeah. I think he's great, but yeah, he only yeah. commentated once. And that was on uh, NBC and it was like 2000 and it was the, I think it was 2000 or 04 or 03. It was the Wimbledon finals between Federer and Andy Roddick that went five sets. Remember that one? Was it the one that Andy bricked the backhand volley at? He bricked the backhand volley. Yep. In the second Should second. never have gotten a net. Should never yeah, have gotten I think that was a little later, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he yep. had that volley there, but anyway, that's. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Agassi was only in the booth, the commentator's booth for two, three, four minutes. That's it. But he had, you know, he just retired and they, oh, you know, come on up. And so right. he came up and he said the greatest thing I've ever heard, which is just how I feel about certain players versus other players. He, they said, what do you think about this match? He says, well, he says, I only have one bit of advice for Andy. He says, I think if the ball goes back and forth over the net five times or more, he says, if I were Andy, I'd just, I'd park it into the stands and start the next point. And I thought that was the funniest thing and the most brilliant thing. <laughs> and he only commentated once, but I said, what a brilliant thing to say. Because he was right. If the point went over, if, if the point went over five or six rallies, he was going to lose it anyway. So you might as well just park it in the stands and hit your big serve. Well, it's funny that you say that because last night, the people that were on with Darren Cahill will remember Darren talking about Andre would literally, he could have closed out the point on the eighth or ninth shot, but he'd rather consistently take it to the 14th or 15th shot by choice because as Darren termed it, it was an investment in taking away your legs. Of like course, Andre, Andre had the mentality of that boxer that was just going to come in and put his head down and just beat on your gut and beat on your ribs and beat on your lungs and beat on your and just eventually you're like this. And then he you know, gives you the big haymaker across the head and, and, and knocks you out. But he had a game plan that he would literally give up opportunities to end points. And so what he probably was referring to was the fact that then Roger would be doing the same thing to Andy that Andre did to everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I agree with, I agree with, uh, with Darren on that one. Absolutely. Um, you know, once again, the grinders versus the ballers, right. The ballers, they like the match. They, they like to hit the ball. I, I remember um, Stevie was this way. Foreman was this way. Uh, Sammy was this way. All those guys in the juniors, they would play serves that were this far out, especially towards the end of the match. They didn't care. They wanted to crush another ball. Yeah. And the grinders, me, I mean, I hate to admit it, but it's true. I was a grinder in the juniors and in college. If that ball was this far out, my finger went up, yeah. out. And that's the difference. The guys that know they can crush the ball, rope the ball, they want to play. Okay. So, you know, and, and they want the points to last and they'll play out balls and they'll move you from side to side before they finally hit the final blow. Um, so it's, it, it's so psychologically different, you know, to be one of the two guys. And like I said, I was always envious of the Ferdy Tagans and the, and the, I don't know. Uh, Jay DeLuise and the guy. Butch Waltz, yeah, yeah, Butch yeah. Waltz, Butch Trey Walkie. Oh, God. You know, the guys that yeah. really enjoyed themselves out there were the ballers, the grinders. Every match for us was complete stress. And well, that know. being said, you know, Solly made a few bucks out there. You know, there's still, there's a place in the sport for the grinder because everybody just doesn't develop that, that unbelievable. So let's talk right. about it. 
Let's talk about a training technique, though, something that these pros can take to the court tomorrow to implement a little of the Brody system. What what what, what can a couple of good takeaways be uh, as yeah. we're coming around the corner on time here? I'd encourage them to go visit the site for starters. Okay. It doesn't cost any money you know, to go visit what is, the site. What is, what is the site? For them. It's Brody Tennis, BrodyTennis.com, B-R-O-U-D-Y. So that's okay. the only difference. And uh, that I would encourage them to do. If any of them are interested, I'll give them a free you know, week. And I thought about this before we spoke. If any of your guys are interested, they can have a free week and look at all the courses and see how different we are. You know, we right. talk about the coil and, and unfurling the coil. We don't talk about, you know, do this with your arm and do that with your arm. So they're welcome to come in if they're right. USPTA. I'll give them a free week. Uh, the book is free. So you can go online and read the book. It gives you the fundamentals and they're basic. One is line up the 45 degree angle. I guarantee tomorrow, if, if some of these bros out there just tell their students, hey, you see the net? See that net post, line up everything to that net post on this side and then on this side, and their players will play 20% better immediately. I mean, that one fundamental makes everyone play better because you line up the shot. Uh, and, and so many players just don't line up. People talk about footwork. But footwork's really, that's the tail wagging the dog. It's the, your feet aren't your core, right? Your core is your core. So if you line up your core, whether you're open or closed stance, Serena used to do it very ugly. I mean, she would face the net, but she'd line up, but she would line up her core, right? You'd okay. see her line up her core at the 45 and she'd reach out there, but it looked painful where Roger just would pick up his feet a little bit, line up the 45 and it looked yeah. much more relaxed, but just lining up the ball better will make your players, you know, everyone 20% better. Just is, alone. is lining up the ball better Jack, to some extent, even though the footwork isn't necessarily as 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 critical as as some people make it out to be, but is it a is it a function of creating? In my mind's eye, I'm seeing a little bit more distance between the body and the ball because it it sounds like you're you're going from inside to out with the release, which is something that I am very big on. So I talk about that inside out release, which I think my verbiage kind of hopefully does translate into somewhat of a 45. Look, that's true. It's very true. You're right. That's one of many things about the okay. 45. Remember, it was mathematics that I learned this 45. Right. Think about an archer. Think about a rifleman. Don't they poise their body at the 45 when they aim? Mm -hmm. isn't, every, isn't every weapon designed so your body's at the 45 degree angle, right. so one eye is closer? It gives you a better depth perception. Right. Um, animals that eyes go straight or bug out always get hit by cars. But the predators, their eyes go in at the 45 degree angle. Um, also, you can disguise a shot better at the 45. At the 45 degree angle, with the smallest of movement of my hand, I can go down the line or cross court. Right. If you take the ball late, you can only go down the line. And if you take it early, you can only go in the net wide or cross court. But at the 45 you can make the most finite changes. That's why I said earlier, Andy Roddick was a target. He'd come in, you know, barreling in the net and Roger would line up the shot. You couldn't tell where it was going until he made contact and he would watch Andy's head or he'd watch his body move just a little bit one way. And then at the last second, he'd turn his hand just a little bit and go down the line instead of cross court. So at the 45, the disguise is better. Your, your view of the ball is much more like a predator and less like prey. And you're correct. You do hit the inside of the ball better and, and the ball sinks deeper into your strings. There's, there's a million reasons 
that the 45 is so important. Well, and you're, you know, what you're describing as far as being able to hold that ball and, and wait out the net player, you know, obviously we saw a lot of that with Borg. Uh, he, he was the ultimate hold it till the last second counterpuncher guy. And so he did a brilliant job with that. So, so far, I think that setting up this 45 and really adhering to it, which I think whether, whether we're doing it in such specific terms or not, I think a lot of us, pro- I mean, I, I, I'm kind of like heartened to find out, I think I'm doing that already kind of thing to a certain extent, but, but why not be, but why not? My, my theory is why not be specific and right. get four kids actually something to hold on to. Oh yeah. I, I line up my 45. So there's that, but also Jack, I love the getting a kid or an adult or whoever ready for a tournament by playing that um, go to a hundred before the point starts. So do you have any, <laughs> do you have any of those, any more of those that were like in your, in your pre your pre-sectional camps that were some games. And oh, maybe man, we- when I was young, I was a crazy coach. I wanted to win so bad. Yeah. That was my big one. That's the one that I always remember, but no, we do these drills like bump up and across where if you and I are up at net, I bump the volley up and I hit it back to you and you bump it up and you hit it back to me. You can only take okay. it. You can only take it at the forty-five. So it locks you ah. in on their volley. You see, if you take it late, it goes behind you. Yep. If you take it early, it goes over the net. But if you want the ball to bump straight up in the air, you have to line up the forty-five. So we do things like that. We warm up with two hands on both sides because same thing. If you have two hands and you're late, you're handcuffed. If you're early, you can't get the ball over the net. No power. So it forces you to make contact right at the forty-five. So we do a lot of drills that enforce the 45 degree angle. And then of course there's a continuity of the hips because the, I think the great players don't have any hitches. I don't believe in loading up and all that stuff. They say, once again, Andy Roddick was the king of loading up. And when I saw him, he mishit 50% of his balls. I mean, 50, I, I was, I was so disappointed when I left Indian Wells because I really liked him a lot. And I just thought, wow, that ball does not sound good coming off his strings. Except for on the serve. Boy, he had a perfect serve. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we do a lot of drills like that. So you learn to keep your hips continuous rather than stopping somewhere in the stroke and having a hitch. And once again, not only does a hitch hurt your game, your strokes, but it crushes you under pressure, right? As soon as you stop, that's the end. <laughs> that's the end, right. you know? So it sounds like there's um, a level of, call it structured relaxation that goes into what you're talking about here. So there's organization to the game. There's organization to the stroke production, but ultimately there's relaxation. Like the kid that you talked about that kept saving match points by hitting winners, you know, like I wish we could all do that, but you you have to have a level of trust in that process. And if you're able to blend those two things, that, that structured relaxation, it sounds like you're kind of hitting the mark. I've never heard it put better. That's really number that's, three, you guys. I'm on the <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's that's really in. I mean, we don't know each other that well. We played tennis right. one day and we've yeah, chatted yeah. a few times. I, yeah. we, I like you personally, Ditto. but that is very astute. And I really like that term. I hope I can get a recording of this so I can remember <laughs> some of that. But you're right. It's 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 like, how do you play looking like you're on the edge, like Agassi used to, mm-hmm. but being in complete control? But right. that's, that's how I, you know, I don't know about other people. That's how I wanted to play. I wanted to look like I was whippy, wet noodle, having a ball and really loosey goosey, but still never missing. Right. And, and that is exactly what it is. It's a formula. It's, it's, it's actually a formula on, on how to flow. Right. right? Like I said, I, I read other people and they were very fluffy 
when a kid, oh, you know, just smoke a fatty and then go play tennis. You'll right. be fine. And I know, but, you know, I know neither of us have ever done that. <laughs> no, never. I did, I did get a question from one of our board members, Mark Faber, who says, you know, okay, so archery and shooters are stationary when firing and they're not receiving anything as your target is stationary. Is is the difference there than the fact that that is where some footwork comes in? And No, brilliant question. Brilliant question. Think about it. Have, uh, what's his name? Mark Faber. Warren, think about no, a no, shortstop. No, 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 no. Mark, Mark Faber. Mark, Mark, yes. think about a shortstop. I played Little League before I played tennis. And I was a second baseman and an outfielder. Could you know why? Because I couldn't catch and throw in the same motion. And the best athlete on every baseball team is always the shortstop. Because he's the only guy, he catches the ball at the 45 while his hips are in motion. And then they stay in motion and he throws. So he's got that quick flick. But if you watch any shortstop, they lock in the 45 and their hips never stop and they catch and throw in the same motion. Okay. So, yeah, when you catch the ball, you catch it at the 45. And when you release it, like when a pitcher, I work with the Padres a little bit, some of their pitchers down in San Diego, and they love the boards, all of them. And they said this 45 degree angle, it's what I do naturally, but I like knowing about it. Kind of what the Brian, kind of what the Brian brothers told me. They said, well, we do this stuff naturally, but it's nice to know what it is we do so we can replicate it. So that was the only thing I can say. These, these natural born athletes, these, these natural athletes, they have an, an intuition about what it is that we're talking about here today. So that's a great question. But yeah, you catch the ball at the 45 and, and you release. And if you've got any other questions out there, guys, we've got a, a, another few minutes here. Um, you know, as far as as far as players that get into slumps and it's like they're adhering to this stroke production advice, but they're having a crisis of confidence. What would be some of the things that you might try to instill in their mind? Is there any, any you know, trick to we, that we, in your we, we, you know, that's, that's a title. It's a, it's a chapter in one of my book. You okay. don't have bad days. Foreman, Sammy, Stevie, whatever tournament they entered, they did what they were supposed to do. They got to the semis, they got to the finals, they won it. I mean, it was but pretty, not pretty everybody rare. does. Right. Okay. It, it, that's the whole thing. When you, when you have a system, I mean, an intellectual system, um, so many people play by feel. That's my thing about the women. I think that they feel great one tournament but then they lose that feel. When you have it intellectually and you have the feel, when you lose it, you can go intellectual and say, okay, come on, man, lock in your 45. You're obviously facing the net, Uh, stuff like that. So it's something you can rely on under pressure is real, true fundamentals that are based in mathematics. I mean, they're not just, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, I think I'll just hit the ball out in front, you know, which is kind of nebulous. Or I think I'll take it off my left foot somewhere. No, I'm going to lock in my 45, line it up, and I'm going to make sure, you know, that I don't pull my left hand off and open up too early. I'm going to do what Djokovic does and pull this left hand in and lock into it. So that's the really beauty of it is you don't have too many bad days because if you don't have your feel that day, you go to your intellect, which I don't think a lot of players can do who just grind it out a thousand balls a day when they lose their feel. Like me when I was a junior, I couldn't take a day off. Because if I took a day off, I was worried that I would lose my feel. And that's a horrible way to go through the juniors. Horrible. Or just being a tennis player, it's a terrible way to go through it. But when you know something so well, like, you know, 
Two times two is four. I know that I can stand on the top of a building and you could point a gun at my head and I'll still say four and I'll be okay. I think when you have a real system, you do develop that faith. And like I said, when the faith is gone, you can go to the intellect. One of the, one of, one of our uh, uh, board members, Marshall Carpenter, the director of tennis over at Cherry Hills, uh, what a politically correct way to ask a question. He says, how would you explain this intellectual approach to a player who might not be at the top of the intellectual ladder? It's <laughs> a great question. <laughs> and well stated, not to offend anybody. Yeah. That's for sure. And I live near Cherry Creek now. so I, Cherry I, Hills, yeah. Cherry, Cherry Hills. Hills. Yeah, I yeah. played there once. Uh, yeah. I've been playing here and there with some guys. Uh, so I'd like to meet some of these guys. That's a great question. Uh, you're right. Uh, he's right. Sometimes you just get to people that go, just hit me a thousand balls. Well, that they don't really come to me. I'm a little too expensive for that. So they don't come to me anyway. I get a lot of kids that are just about to quit the game. You know how that happens more often in the juniors than anything else. Kids are about to quit and I save them. And, and so I really feel really as good as I feel about my boys and girls that play great ball and are on the tour today. I think I feel even better about the kids that were not athletic or overweight, but really smart and this and that. And they enjoy tennis so much. You know, they, they played high school. Some of them played college and other pros dismissed them and they were in the middle of slumps. Um, but he's right. There are some people that they don't want to hear anything. They don't want, you know, and there's not much you can do with them, but all three of these fundamentals are pretty simple. I mean, Teaching someone the 45 degree angle, all you have to do is look at the tennis court behind me, right? And you see what a 90 degree angle is. So you say to your six-year-old, well, split that in half. And they just draw a line. I go, well, that's the 45. So, I mean, I get five-year-olds to understand the 45. So it's a great point. And I love the way you put it. Well, and, and it may be that he asked that question because maybe Marshall was that kid. You know, that wasn't wasn't know. like at the top of the intellectual food chain. No, he knows. That. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> joking, Marshall. I love you. I, I, I'm not You're, touching that. I don't know, Marshall. And I still want to no, be, I I be pals with Marshall. He's, so. He and I are the best of buds. And okay. so he knows uh, the more I tease him, the more I like him. But um, it's a funny question. No, and he's actually just given me a little sign of, of um, you know, what I can do with that. But uh, but anyway, well, listen, Jack, we're coming up against it. Is there anything hey. that you want to sort of just an overall you want to that you'd like to close with? I mean, you're closing out the conference. This is it. This is well, the 22, the 22 uh, Intermountain Divisional Conference coming to an end here. So, OK, my last thing would be yeah. um, I would love to meet a lot of these guys. Um, I know the game has been taught for a lifetime since you and I were kids and before right. by tips, period. Yeah. And I'm telling you this system, this system based on projective geometry, mathematics, a bunch of stuff I did never wanted to bore people with. Um, that had nothing to do with tennis. It's a system. It's an actual closed system. So you can see why some tips were decent in the past, right? You know, do this, get, you know, get your racket back early. That's not a good tip. I mean, we all kind of realize that today. Yeah. Um, this really uh, is a whole different world. This is a whole different world from just tips, which puts the onus on your student. Hey, try this. Try stepping in. That's all they ever say. Pro, not, not all, but mostly that's what right. they say is they give you a tip and then they say, well, you give it a shot. And oh, and if it didn't work, you didn't hit enough balls. This puts the onus on the instructor. It puts it on me. 
And I'm saying this system, let's line up the 45. If I have to put you on a board, I put you on a board or let you use a Cobra, which is a new product of mine, which shows the sine wave and how you precisely have to lay the racket head back to make contact perfectly with the ball, not just lay your head back or drag and lag. You know, a lot of people are throwing tips out there these days about the, the shoulders lead the stroke. These are just tips. So that's my biggest thing is let's, okay. I want to elevate the, the teaching, the education of tennis so it grows. And when people realize that, oh my God, I'm a smart person. So if I just do this system, it'll work for me. That grows the game. When you give guys, you know, umpteen tips on forehands and backhands and everything's different. Everything is the same here. Whether I'm teaching you the serve, it's still making contact at the 45 or the backhand, and it's still continuous motion in the hips, creating a sine wave. So you have one philosophy for every stroke. So you don't have to just practice high forehands on the service line and try and piece together your game. Now, instead, you sort of own your game. You know it. So whatever shot comes up, you're in pretty good shape. He is Jack Brody, and he has definitely got a unique system, a unique presentation and way to uh, communicate it. And he assures us that this was not born of the days at Woodstock. He's not old enough nope. for that no, to no. be the case, but it is It is. Very I'm drinking, interesting. I'm drinking water. I'm drinking water. <laughs> I've hit with you, Jack, and I know how well you hit the ball, and I see what Thank you're you. talking about. So I really appreciate it. Very entertaining, very thought-provoking stuff. Extremely intriguing and a great way for us to close out the conference.